How does a deep blue painted room make you feel? What about a green forest in spring, as the deciduous trees start to come into bud? There is green, and then there is vernal green, the kind of fresh, zesty, plucky injection of colour that's often enough to revive you from the torpor of winter. This edition of Confet Corner looks at the nuance of hue. We talk to colour consultant Anna von Mangolt and hear the artistic inspiration and memories of a colourist and purveyor of paint, Cassandra Ellis. As ever, our contributors and guests wear their hearts on their sleeves. We'll meet a baker who is so dedicated to his craft making rye basil bread, he's named his New Zealand venture Bread Love. We'll also talk about Paul Smith and Picasso in Paris, Czech sandwiches and the healing power of sound, specifically a long and absorbing gong bath in London. This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. Many people think that it's so stressful to paint or to think about a colour concept. And I think it's just a thing of mindset. If you take your time, if you see choosing colour is a, more as a pleasure, then it's a really, really nice thing to improve your life and to make your home more beautiful. It's very darkly roasted in the oven, and it's very humid. It has a high hydration. It has huge bubbles. It's moist, I could say, on the inside, and very crunchy on the outside. Spring green has a life in it. Rather than the sun-bleached green of late summer, there is a feminine undertone to early greens, pinks, and a freshness at the core. It's a green that has just woken up rather than ready to fade. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London. And I'm joined once more by Marcella Palick in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in London. Hello to you both. Hi, Sophie. How are you? Great. Hello, London. Hello, Zurich. How are you, Marcella? We have a little cold. (laughs) Spring is here and then it's been sort of snatched away from you over in Zurich. It's a cold snap. (laughs) It's freezing, actually, but bright sunshine. That's the most important thing. All the blossom looks sort of like a little bit alarmed when that happens. I always feel very sorry for the spring plants yeah. pushing their heads up and suddenly winter mm-hmm. reappears. Well, as our regular listeners will know, we like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Marcella, let's start with you. So as you know, Sophie, after all the fashion weeks, recently I was in Prague. It was lunchtime in one of those days and it was unexpectedly snowing. And then I discovered my new favorite spot in Prague. It's called Nasze Maso. In Czech, this means our meat. It's a wonderful new modern butchery and um, bistro, even with a little shop. And they made for, in my sense, the best sandwiches I ever had. Like with pulled beef, warm roast in it, and it was super, super delicious. And uh, as my friends were vegetarian, I sent them over to patisserie called Sukrar Scala. And they had like, same like the butcher, they had the best Czech patisserie you can imagine. But please make sure you come hungry because it would be a real, real shame if you don't taste those sandwiches, which are my favorite now. And I recommend them to everybody who goes ever to Prague. I love this image of you in a snowy Prague, just having this wonderful moment (laughs) with your friends and then realising they have to actually cross the street and go (laughs) elsewhere. No, it's a beautiful moment. And I think the idea that you have to come hungry is 
really important because you always say to me, you, know, you have to limber up for these meals and really kind of get the right sort of sense of when you eat. And that's something that you do really well, Marcella. <laughs> how I wish after the show we could all together go to go and have one of those sandwiches. And Chilean, how about you? Well, I was in uh, Paris recently, really the calm before the storm. And I was uh, lucky enough to see a new exhibition. It's called Picasso Celebration, the collection in a new light. And it truly is in a new light. The curators invited Paul Smith, iconic, whimsical British fashion designer, to spend weeks in the archive and be the artistic director of a new collection through his eyes. And we all know Paul Smith. He's obsessed with finding inspiration in everything and he has wit and he's a little bit eccentric, sometimes kitsch. So to take an iconic artist like Picasso and put it in his hands is very brave. And I have to say, this is not a white cube gallery experience. It really is staged and quite joyous and also very clever, like just the way he clusters things and the way he frames them from the years that Picasso worked with Diaghilev and the Harlequin themes or his fascination with bullfights in blood-red rooms. It really pulls like a filmmaker some of the themes that Picasso worked with in very, very sharp relief. And what I find fascinating, I always enjoy going to Shakespeare plays that are reimagined by different contemporary theatre directors or ballets uh, reimagined. And similarly, I think it's quite brave because this is very much casting against type for the curators to put Picasso in Paul Smith's hands. I mean, I I was quite surprised when I saw the pairing. But then you remember that Paul Smith is obsessed with colour and pattern and harlequin and stripe. And I imagine that he's pulled so much inspiration uh. from the work of Picasso in his career. So it's quite interesting to kind of bring him into that space, British designer as well. Oh, it's just wonderful. And even throughout the exhibitions, you're going up the staircases and, and there are little hand-painted stripes along the stairs. And it's really very experiential uh, and very witty. What about you, Sophie? Well, actually, I had a wonderful experience yesterday with a facialist who came from Ibiza and she's got an amazing sort of clinic and wellness set up in Ibiza. And her name's Frederica von Hagen, but she came with these wonderful pots of unguents, of prickly pear oil and neroli. It felt like she brought the kind of smells and feel of the Balearics to London, which was really nice. But then she gives these amazing facials and it's all about rewilding your skin and bringing your skin back to the kind of natural state, kind of enlivening it. And I think I really love that kind of parallel between almost horticulture and then <laughs> your skin and the idea that we kind of constantly introduce so many products that we kind of lose the essence of what our skin's all about. So it was wonderful to meet her, but also just to dream of the kind of warm shores of that kind of coast and smell and feel that in a slightly chilly spring London. Well, there's something so hypnotic about having facials, but I love the thought of this because it sounds like also alchemy with nature where you really can't do start to understand the goodness and the thought behind the ingredients that she uses. First up on today's show, the arrival of spring is often accompanied by an urge to declutter and perhaps even give a fresh lick of paint to our homes. Yet the search for that perfect off-white or complementary palette can be tricky. 
That's where colour consultant Anna von Kettler steps in. After starting her career importing paints to her native Germany, she eventually launched her own luxury paint brand, Anna von Mangold Farben. And she helps guide homeowners and businesses alike in their quest for the perfect shade. I caught up with Anna a little earlier and started by asking her where her obsession with colour began. Well, actually, I've uh, loved dealing with colors for my whole life already, um, as long as I can remember. When I was a small age, three or four, I attended my first art class for children where we decorated egg boxes with paint, for example. And then as a young girl, I was allowed to paint walls and pieces of furniture at home. So my parents always supported me (laughs) in my creativity. But at that point, I was uh, very unaware of the different qualities of paint. And I just used these commonly available materials and was quite disappointed because the results didn't look like the pictures in these English and French books I uh, always had for inspiration. When I discovered British chalk paint while I was a student uh, in England, yeah, that was actually the real game changer and that when my real obsession with colour began, so when I was in the beginning of my 20s, how I started uh, importing English paint to Germany was actually because I met um, Annie Sloan, who is an English paint designer, and uh, she has a really exquisite but deliberately limited range of colors and uh, uses mainly for furniture. And when I fell in love with her paint and started importing them to Germany, I realized that in order to paint whole rooms and houses, I need a much bigger range. And I also realized that the colors that looked good in England didn't automatically look good in the German houses. And that was mainly because of the different lighting. So the same color could look beautiful in England, but we have different light here. So I had to mix my own colors in order to have satisfied customers here in Germany. Do you say that's because of architecture as well? The scale of the rooms, for instance, the apartments rather than houses. Can you give us some specific examples of how the architecture might be different and the cultural perception of colour might be different. If I think about English houses, for example, or English, these uh, little uh, English cottages or London townhouses, they are just already different from the German houses. The whole style is... I think you can't really compare it. And with other things like fabrics, for example, it's completely normal that you use different kind of fabrics in different styles and that also goes with color but even more important is this kind of perception of deep-rooted belief in Germany that white or shades of white are a safe bet to give light even to a dark room because we always want to have everything light here in Germany. And I think that is a difference to England, where they just like to live also with stronger colours. It is a misconception, but still we think we get rooms lighter with white, but actually don't. That automatically leads to the result that we have mostly white living rooms until today. And another thing is that we're usually very quality oriented in Germany 
But regarding paint, it is it, different. We think paint needs to be cheap. And I have to say, cheap red doesn't look good on walls. <laughs> so it's better to get a cheap white. And the English paints that are, have been on the market for many, many years, I think they are more willingly to spend more money on good paint. And you see that on the walls. You see a quality difference. Now, part of your business is consultation. And in a sense, you're a colorist, but also somebody that has to intuit the taste and desires of your customer and try and mix up colors that work for them. Can you tell us some of the questions that you ask your clients when you're trying to consult? It's always a mixture. I, if I go to the house or flat or whatever they want to paint, I have a look at the architecture and the light and the furniture while I'm asking what it is used for, who's going to live in it, uh, what are their wishes, what are they dreaming about. If they, for example, are dreaming about French-style castle <laughs> but actually live in a just a normal house I'm trying to get these ideas together to find out which colors would achieve or fulfill their dream of having the slight feeling of a French castle in, in the house, for example. It's a lot about what they are dreaming about and the rest is often about what's the color of the floor, what are the artworks, what are the colors of the furniture. And very often all these facts limit the choice of colors that is possible in a house. And can you give me some examples of colors that you have recently recommended and that have been applied? And maybe talk about some of the more surprising choices and what effect they have had on the interior space. Most of the time I still recommend or have been recommending light colors, like light grays, off-whites that is still a favorite choice, I have to say. But these colors are often combined with light pastels. And most of the time my customers like it when the colors have a slight grayish touch to the color. And something that surprises me is that the choice of strong colors is increasing. <laughs> So strong, dark colors like dark green or jeans, blue, terracotta red. <laughs> that is the new phenomenon. And I have the feeling that it also is a result of the influence of social media and the availability of more inspiration from all over the world. What's the link between color and wellness? Do you feel that a really beautiful color can improve your quality of life and even your mood, even your sense of wellness. Because I often feel that blue, a really beautiful Yves Klein blue, in your life, whether it's in textiles or whether it's paint, can make you feel like you're close to the elements, close to the sea, for instance. And it can make you feel rooted in nature, even though it's clearly just a kind of illusion. Yes, absolutely convinced that This is so. However, I think it also depends on the quality of the color. So if you have a very uh, artificial bright blue, I think it's more disturbing than leading to more wellness and, and beauty. But if you have 
more natural looking with good pigments it doesn't matter if it's a piece of art or a cashmere <laughs> or a wall paint then uh, it has exactly the effect you just mentioned and describe your own approach to color what does your house look like and what colors are you drawn to what do you dream about yourself i really like colors i have every room is painted in a different color but they all have a grayish touch to it and i decorate with bright accents so i love the combination of all kinds of blues combined with orange and reds for example the moment um, i'm sitting in a room we just painted blue with a very colorful kilim in the middle so I always like the combination of these colours. And how does your blue room make you feel? What space is that for? Is it for reflection? Is it for kind of celebration? Tell me about how the colours kind of inform the usage almost of the space. So in this case, I'm at the moment, I'm sitting in our flat in Düsseldorf. And this is our living room, which is extremely dark. Therefore, I chose a bright blue in order to get some atmosphere into it. Before that, it was painted white and looked rather grey and quite sad. And now I think it has some positive energy. And especially at night, when we lit candles and have cosy lights, it's just a really special atmosphere for good communication and family life and also nice dinner parties. <laughs> I think uh, the colour really adds to this. Would you mind telling me about some of your inspirations? Because I know you're developing new pigments and colours and colourways all the time. And as it's spring and, you know, we have these wonderful green shoots sprouting up and uh, I wonder whether there's any particular hue that you feel that you want to sort of render and paint, whether the natural world provides inspiration. Definitely. Uh, however, it's more my my personal life that I, at the moment, I just like bright colors and pinks and yellows. But that is not something um, that would influence the development of my palettes, because the, the aim of my color palettes should always be um, timeless. They should work for several years, and therefore... I try <laughs> to keep them independent from my personal moods, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I do. And I think that just kind of be your hinterland of, you know, really expressive colour that you don't actually always want to have on the wall of your house. You express different parts of yourself with colour and maybe fashion can be more expressive because you can change it put it yeah. away in a drawer, which is not so easy to do with a wall or a room. Exactly, but you can do it with um, smaller things, you know, like furniture. Many customers of mine paint their furniture. If you would like to have colourful chairs, for example, in a bright Eve Klein blue, then you can have that for two years and then you can change it quite easily. I think, Anna, you might have inspired me to go home this weekend and paint some of my furniture Eve Klein blue because I've been in Morocco and I felt this yearning for blue skies so I ordered a pot yeah. and now I think I'm gonna to have to just go for it on some of the furniture and see where I get to <laughs> but I think this idea yeah, of like <laughs> of just bringing color into your life 
when you can't reach those blue skies is quite a lovely idea of escapism. You can do so much on your own. I think it's amazing. But maybe one, one thing is many people think that it's so stressful to paint or to think about a color concept. And I think it's just a thing of mindset. If you take your time, if you see choosing color is a more as a pleasure, then it's a really, really nice thing to improve your life and to make your home more beautiful. That was Anna von Kettler, CEO of luxury paint brand Anna von Mangold Farben. You're listening to Confect Corner. And now to what many would call the ultimate comfort food, bread. Slathered with a bit of butter and some drops of honey, the scent of bread is one we immediately associate with the feeling of home and makes it impossible to resist. For Swiss film director Christian A.B., a loaf of bread was always synonymous with his hometown of Basel. And while living abroad, he was so homesick for the town's Basler bread that he decided to bake his own. What began as cooking for himself and his loved ones eventually expanded to a series of neighbourhood bakeries called Bread Love. Confex Miriam Zumbel went along to visit his newly opened shop by the Limat River of Zurich to find out more. It's quite gutsy for someone from Basel to come to Zurich to sell his bread. Let me give you the backstory. Both of these Swiss cities are known for having their signature breads. A Basler bread is a sourdough and it's famous for its crusts, which is almost black, cracks in a thousand pieces upon biting into it and has a crumb with huge air pockets. While the Zürcher is similar in shape and color, it is more dense and moist on the inside and pairs perfectly with the Zürcher Bratwurst, ideal to mop up some hot mustard. Both are chewy, delicious and both claim to be the best in the country. It often happens that someone walks past Christian Ebi's bread love shop just to return a few seconds later to press their nose against the shop's window, admiring the fresh bread. It seems that it is very hard to resist this flour-dusted, crisp crusted, heaven-scented, dark honey-colored Basle-Bühle. Baker Christian Ebi rejoices. It's a white bread. It's a wheat sourdough bread. And it's very darkly roasted in the oven, and it's very humid. It has a high hydration. It has huge bubbles. So when you cut it up, you know, there are so big holes that the butter won't it hold. Through it. Yeah, it goes through it. <laughs> so that's the typical thing. And it's very humid. It's very, it's very not juicy, but it's moist, I could say, in the inside, and very crunchy on the outside. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is the bread. Christian is quick to offer me a small chunk of bread with some salted butter. As I bite into its dark crust, I immediately recognize the sweetness. It's an almost caramel-like bite. Absolutely. This is the main point of baking it so long and so dark. This is a caramelization going on. So there is a certain sweetness. I mean, first it might be a little bit bitter, but then it turns right away into some sweetness. And it's a whole different ballgame when you have a sourdough baking dark in the oven compared to a yeast bread that bakes dark. Being a baker is his second career. For years, Christian was pursuing life as a film director and created advertisements around the globe. 
but wherever his job took him, he was always homesick, thinking of Basel and its bread. My homesickness started when I left my hometown, which was in the age of 20. I moved to Zurich, which is 70 kilometers further east, but they don't have the bread like this. So I started to starve for my bread. So every time I went home, I took some loaves with me back to Zurich. And then I left Switzerland and I went to America and I went to other places and I ended up in Hamburg to meet my wife and to have a family. And so I was staying there for 35 years, starving, still starving for my home bread. So while I was having my film career, which was quite international, I worked all over the world, I was scouting for some bread that was similar, like my own bread, and I couldn't find any of it. It took him years to bake a loaf that could compete with the original Basler bread, but one day he felt comfortable enough to share it with others. I decided to go for a test, and the test was the farmer's market in Hamburg. So I thought, okay, I'm having one bread, one sort of bread. I need the smallest stand of all others. So I did some research on the internet and every stand was too big. So I decided to build my own stand, which was only one meter wide. So I, I just imagined, okay, I have one sort of bread on that one meter stand. That's perfect, it's making sense. You know, it's also kind of a reduction to the maximum. You know? So I built my stand and I go there, and on the first day, 20 breads, they were sold into us. And then I said, okay, oh, this might be uh, worth it to explore, you know? So next time I was there with 40 breads, and it took two and a half hours, and they were sold out. So I, I started to understand that people wanted to have this bread, that they would go for the price, and they would come back. A good sourdough, it seems, fills people with sheer, unbridled greed. It hits a spot. Christian is convinced it gets to your soul. I would say it has almost biblical dimensions. It's something that touches the soul of human beings the deepest compared to other stuff. It stands for the human being. It stands for the species. You know, earliest cultures had bread. Bread was always there and bread seems to be in our souls and getting the feel sometimes that I'm hitting the souls of people with bread as well as my own it goes so deep and it's so fundamental that very honestly I can't understand that the mainstream hasn't discovered this yet this is really something that I can't really understand because I can read the faces and the smiles and the enthusiasm about people coming here into the store and having my bread. It's amazing what it does to the people. Christian perfected one particular type of dough and uses it to create a small collection of various breads. The signature one is the Bürli, a set of small breads to be shared at the table. The flute is best served with some pâté or a creamy cheese. And of course there is the Basler bread, which in Switzerland we call Pfündeli, the Swiss word for a pound, and it's the perfect bread to smear a slap of butter on. And then there is the hammer, an impressive three and a half kilo loaf which started as an accident. 
it happened one day that my baker came up to me and he showed me his portion of dough that was too long fermented. It was way too high, it rose way too high to make our other formats. And he wanted to throw it away. And I said, hey, don't throw it away. Why don't we just bake it as it is? You know, just one big chunk of dough. We'll see what happens. When I saw this product for the first time, it grew enormously. It was big. It's a four kilo piece of bread. Very airy. It's impressive. You know, when you look at it, it's almost hypnotic. You know, when, when I see the eyes of the tourists coming by, you know, they can't look away from that. I had to find a name for it, and I thought, okay, I call it hammer. <laughs> you know, it looked like a huge, huge iron hammer. It's amazing when I see the holes. I mean, here there is no way you could smear butter on it. This is a slight problem, I must say. This is unusual that mm -hmm. the hole is so big. On the shop counter, customers can cut as big of a chunk from the hammer as they like. Each loaf keeps for five days, that is, if you can resist it for that long. Such an evocative piece there for Miriam. There's so many foods that evoke that feeling of home for me. Marcella, what's the ultimate food or dish that reminds you of home? So that's unchanged since years. So the first dish that I plan after weeks abroad is a golden oven roasted pre-arranged chicken. And this is since since years and years. For me, that's home. That's what you pine for on your trips to <laughs> no, yeah. India or whatever. And in Paris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm dreaming about a golden chicken. It's funny how some foods are quite emotional and I think that they tap into early memories, but they feel like home. They smell like home while they're being cooked in the house. You see that when you feel like you've been on the road for a long time, you realise that we're all programmed to yearn for those smells that are kind of things that we're actually, as intrepid as we are, they're actually quite familiar. Julian, well, what about you? I was thinking on this and I was thinking my most emotional connection with food is really childhood memories, specifically making and baking with my mother. And I just have memories of being around a table and sort of watching the artistries of her hands and then being able, as I got grow older, to be given tasks. And I remember this one Czech pastry. We just called them apricot parcels. And I just remember the joy of being able to give it the task of putting the apricot jam in the middle of the square and then like play being able to squish the corners together and then sprinkle the castor sugar. But my memories of food are really the making of and the making of with my mother. So nice. What a lovely image. I have images of picking mint with my grandmother from her rockery <laughs> and then making it into mint sauce for roast lamb, which we always have on Sundays. And she had a mint roller, which is a kind of little gizmo for kind of cutting up the mint. It's such a lovely ritual, in a sense, that idea of picking and then creating the smells and then sitting down together. And then it defines family, so then you can get very attached to even the moment of kind of gathering the food and buying the food together. It's also fun to think of, like, those more celebratory moments, like we always make this wonderful big paella when we're on holiday in Spain. And, you know, those memories of kind of, like, birthday, when you suddenly feel, like, the lightness in the air and the sense of kind of anticipation... Food from that moment is also very evocative. A good fashion shop should do more than provide its customers with a great new outfit. It should be a place to chat, confide and build confidence. 
Carmen Atia de Bayetz learnt that when growing up in a family that owned a couple of clothing retailers in a small town in the Netherlands. Even though she didn't immediately pursue her dream of opening her own store, when she eventually did, she knew what kind of space she wanted it to be. That's why her shop in Amsterdam, Carmen, is complete with a delectable kitchen and a cosy guest house, and why she'll personally attend to many of her customers' requests. Confex deputy editor Chiara Ramella visited the two canal houses that are home to her eponymous project to find out more about her philosophy and buying choices. I kind of grew up in a house where fashion was, I guess, a really big thing in different ways. My dad is from a small province in southern Holland and his parents owned a couple of stores in that village and that's where everybody came and bought their nice clothes. So I sort of grew up visiting them. They still had the stores when I was really young and every weekend we would sort of sit and have Sunday lunch and they would talk about how it was going in the store and how people were receiving like the new collections. And on the other side, my mom's side, my mom is Lebanese, which is a very different way, I think, of dressing compared to more like Northern Europe. It's very Southern. Women are very like they really take care of themselves. They spend quite a lot of time like on sort of how they go out into the world. And she was also a working mom. I just remember on weekends going with her to this very specific store in Amsterdam actually called Pau. It still exists. I really admire her actually because she started this women's wear store that was very much for professional women without it being branded in this way. You could go and get like really amazing skirt suit sets with like a little vest and then a blazer and like you could go get blouses and long skirts, shorter skirts. And on the weekends we would go... All the women that were working there were really knowledgeable about tailoring, about how things fit to the body, about how to make the women that came and shopped there feel and look really good, because a lot of them were also working. So it was always like kind of shopping was a family affair, I would say. I always really dreamt of opening a shop, I think because I saw how people just came together in those places and it was fun. And I never minded being taken with them. I always sort of loved being with the grown-ups and witnessing this whole thing <laughs> sort of being played out in front of me. And I really wanted to do that because I could tell how it made everyone feel really good, actually. But anyways, whenever I said that I wanted to do that, my dad would say to me, he was like, you don't understand, like every weekend, every summer, everybody else would go on holiday and like I was made to work in the store like when everyone's off like you're working I then applied to go to university in London obviously in London you're surrounded by amazing stores amazing fashion amazing arts amazing culture and I kind of got distracted I think with that how does that translate onto what's on the racks next door because there's plenty of range, I feel like, yeah. to, what, to the things that you have on the shelves. So one of the designers that I'm very drawn to is Mariam Nasserzadeh. She's Iranian-American. In a way, I think I also really identify with, if I look at her clothes, if I look at how she dresses, when I look at her shows, it's very much, it's very feminine, but very comfortable and strong at the same time. So I love bringing a selection of her designs and especially shoes here there are not a lot of stores in Europe that stock her so I'm very very proud of that because I 
yeah, I don't know. Like I'm wearing her heels now and they're very feminine, but they're super comfortable and I feel original and chic, but like I can also get on the bike, you know, get going with my day. Then there's a friend of mine who's Dutch, Florian. She designed a new line of basic cottons. She started with cotton t-shirts and now they're also dresses and skirts. I wear a lot of them, a lot of her long sleeves especially, as layers. You know, having moved back to Amsterdam again in London, like you travel with the tube a lot, you sort of go from A to B without experiencing the weather as much, so you can dress a bit better. Um, whereas here, like you really, in order to go anywhere, you have to suffer a bit. Like you have to get on the bike and you have to get rained on and you have to get cold. So things get worn easier. And I think layering is a very big thing for me that I've learned to do a lot more since moving back. So how to create a kind of a chic outfit that's still comfortable. We started now this season with Saxpots, which is a Danish brand by two best friends whom I connected with a lot last summer since we both, all three of us had babies. They were sort of in a place in their company where they've existed already for 10 years. They've been around for quite a while. Mm -hmm. and they started kind of with sexy outfits and mm -hmm. like kind of sexy coats. And since becoming moms, they really made this conscious effort to turn their company and their designs into a bit more of a mature version of themselves as they have grown up. They wanted the collections to grow up. And I really identified actually with that. I'm very excited about stalking them because you can really put on an outfit from them and feel super comfortable. I think the Danish culture is very similar to the Dutch culture. So initially when I started the store, I had a lot of American brands and like quite frilly things like 80s things because that's sort of still coming from London. That was very much my vibe. And then living here and also having a baby and running the guest house and like being very active and sort of in the weather all the time, I was like, okay, but a lot of the things that I'm stalking are not very practical. So I was looking for a bit more practicality, which I find in Danish brands. How much do you think that fashion and fashion retail is increasingly moving more towards this idea of hospitality in a wider sense? You know, you talked mm. about growing up and going to the shops yeah. and feeling like you belonged somewhere where people were taking care of you and it wasn't just a transaction. Yeah. Do you think that in order to recover that sense people are having to lean more into the hospitality side of things. And is that something that informs your approach to what makes a good store? How does hospitality play into your idea of fashion retail? Yeah. I think what's happening very much is that there's fast fashion where probably everybody buys something from, you know, whether it's like your Uniqlo thermals that you have or your socks from Arquette, the basics really. And then I look, I think, for more special things in boutiques. In order to run a small boutique, you have to sort of give that element of human experience that other big, big stores do not have because I cannot compete with those stores. But what I can give is a, a welcoming feeling, a feeling that you're seen, a feeling that if you're looking for something, like we get so many people that come in and they're like, I have a wedding, I need an outfit, help. I love an assignment like this. Or there was an artist that came by a couple of days ago and she was like, I have an opening tonight. I have an outfit. I'm not comfortable. And I literally spent an hour with her in the fitting room and we just like tried on loads of things. And nobody's ever obliged to buy something. If I can make you feel good, I'd love to do that, you know? So 
she found this amazing blazer and a suede pants and new shoes and she left in it and went straight to the opening. How would you do that at like a fast fashion store? Like, I don't really know unless you really know what you're looking for maybe and, and what you need. Aside from how do you find your brands, whether you find them through research, through going, through meeting, through word of mouth, do you select them based on your instinct and what feels good for you? Or is there more of a wider plan of what do I need on the shelves? What creates this big puzzle? There always has to be a reason or a stimulus to add something because I want to keep it very small. I got some advice from a very senior buyer at a big department store here. She came and she kind of gave me a crash course in buying. And she was really sort of like, but Carmen, you have to fill the store. Like in order to make money, you have to fill the store. It's winter. In winter, you need to put hats. You need to put scarves. You need to put mittens. You need to put big sweaters, big coats. And so because she said that to me, I was like, I started like looking for all these things. And it, in the end, I didn't do it because it didn't feel natural. Cannot do it unless it comes from a personal Place. That was Chiara Romella in conversation with Carmen Atia de Betz. And now the practice of sound healing, an ancient form of sound therapy that is said to boost creativity, alleviate stress and leave you in a deep state of relaxation. It usually involves laying down in a dimly lit room while a sound therapist uses instruments to make melodies and vibrations that echo through the space and wash over the audience for the purpose of creating an experience that's healing, relaxing and invigorating all at once. So, is it time to consider incorporating sound therapy into your wellness toolbox? And how does it all work? To find out more about this transformative practice... Laura Kramer went to OM at the Other House in London's South Kensington. It's the first and only wellness experience purely dedicated to sound bath meditations and has the UK's largest gongs. Laura caught up with Swiss conceptual artist and sound meditation practitioner Leo Kosende to experience a gong bath and to hear about the healing power of sound. I wanted to create something that would be 55 minutes worth eight hours of meditation. It's really a treatment-grade sound bath. It's various in an intimate setting. The room has been made for this. You have the two biggest gongs in the country in the smallest room. It's incredibly cozy. It's a bit like a half cocoon, half space shuttle. My goal was to envisage what a sonic experience might look like in the future. Not entertainment, but really entrainment, I would say. Leo Cossenday is a musician, sound therapist, and leader in the global wellness community, recognized for his innovative work in sound healing and music therapy. And for the next six months, he's also the resident sound healer at The Other House, bringing the arm experience to busy Londoners who could definitely benefit from its rejuvenating effects. We've been using sound for a very long time, I mean, thousands of years ago, whether it was drumming on the surface of rivers, using wood sticks, carving wood and making instruments, uh, using our hands, our voices. Now, this room is set up for four people. There is an intention behind that. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I do believe that sound is most potent when it's experienced as a, as a group, as a community, as a tribe. I think it, it does expand, it gets compounded when you are as part of a group. 
even if you don't know people, so some people can also book a ticket and they might be with three strangers, but there's some, there's some kind of communication that unfolds when you're lying down having this experience that, is, that you don't get anywhere else. Gong baths are said to provide therapeutic relief for stress, anxiety, and depression. Some say it can even help with chronic pain. And Leo says there's evidence to back up these claims, but he prefers a holistic approach to the benefits of sound healing. It's important to uh, to understand that most of the research has been led on the benefits of music. When it comes to sound, there's still a lot to be done. However, I've been working with neuroscientists from all around the world for my uh, teacher training course. I train people to do what I do. And what they have found is that it helps your body to create nitric oxide. It also helps to activate your vagus nerve. It helps your mind as well. And I think it's important to understand that, yes, we can look at like, what does it do to your, your nervous system in terms of, you know, adrenals and, and so on. And what does it do to your hormones? And that's very well and good but I think what's important to look at is what does it do to uh, your perception of the world perception of yourself and you come out full of questions full of space between each thought and with a lot of energy to use that's one thing that I noticed I was really excited about my day and also implementing some of the things that I thought about yeah yeah a lot of my clients don't do it just to relax or de-stress they do it because it helps them get in touch with their muse, with their creativity. They do problem solving, de-stressing is, is very much something that's on the menu, but why not ask for more than that? That's why I didn't, I didn't say anything like leave all the thoughts behind and, and blah, blah, blah. No. Thinking is a great tool. It just has to be uh, in the right, in the right um, environment with the right, uh, the right settings and the right people around. there are two people looking after me at the Alm installation. It's a multi-sensory experience with heated blankets, pillows, and aromatherapy oils, courtesy of Leo's wife, Sara Cosenday. We've been working together collaboratively using aromatics and sound meditation together. Uh, today I blended, um, it was a royal Hawaiian sandalwood blend which you rub into the palms of your hands which you inhale before the start of the meditation, which kind of gets you into the meditative state. And then at the end, I closed with a Bulgarian rose otto hydrosol, and that was again with the sandalwood and an Australian bushflower remedy called Angel's Word, which is for an energetic sealing and protection. And Leo says he hopes it helps more people to incorporate sound healing into their wellness routine. Mindfulness is really a byproduct of our experiences. I don't think it should be a practice. For me, it's an installation that explores organic binaural beats. So this sensation that you're hearing a beat which actually doesn't exist. It's just a lot of frequencies that are very, very close to one another. So close, but yet they're not quite the same. And you're hearing that variation as a beat. And that has, when you have so many of them at the same time happening live in the room, impacting your brain in so many ways. So in terms of like electricity, in terms of the brainwaves activation, it's, it's, it's like fireworks. For Confect in London, I'm Laura Kramer.
Leo Cosende in conversation with Laura Kramer. Now, I have to ask, Marcella, have you ever done any sound healing? And if not, are you interested to try? To be honest, I never heard about it, but I would try tomorrow. Oh, really? Good. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you're up amazing. for it. amazing, yes. It sounds very immersive. Gillian, does it appeal to you at all? Well, well, it does. So now I'm thinking, because I love my ritual of candlelit bubble baths, I think I now have to find the sound of gong somewhere and transform my bathroom on a cosy winter night into a gong bath. I think, why not? I could do it myself, couldn't I? No, I think it's <laughs> far too... You have to have a gong master. The interesting thing, and we hear it in the report, it's partly about vibration and about getting into this deep state and then absorbing the vibrations and the sounds throughout the body. So I think so you, you have to be... you feel them, you feel them. You feel them. Ah, it, I, I think okay. it's less about sound. For me, when I've done it, which I have, it's more about vibration. But, I mean, it's not really my thing, I have to say. <laughs> I love sound. You know, I love being by the sea and listening to the waves. And I'm very sensitive to sound. So I found it almost too much. And I prefer to just enjoy birdsong or an incidental kind of moment of sound therapy rather than this very intense experience. But I'm sure, Marcella, you're going to love it. We'll get you signed up next time you're here in London. <laughs> With pleasure. And finally, it's time for our essay. For this episode, we're coming full circle and offering another musing on the bright and vital palette of spring. This time, the founder and colourist of Atelier Ellis, Cassandra Ellis, gives us a love letter to the colour green. There is a moment in the nothing days of March where everything loosens. The ground swells and we breathe in the new light. Seasons talk in colour and early spring size green, that murmuring soft green that we humans have been waiting for. We know green lands and surges every year, but it always feels deeply hopeful offering the much-needed confirmation of new life, all the potential for a different way of living. The glaucous and gleaming green that climbs out of the earth signifies that life in general is about to get better, more light, kinder sunshine and fewer clothes. The first day you can open doors and step out onto fresh warm grass is a memorable one indeed. We know that spring arrives without fail, but we have such an emotive response to it when it finally does. As humans, we have an acute sensitivity of place, space and seasons. And so the wonder of shoots pushing out of the ground and buds swelling means that we're most definitely alive and ready to start again. Spring green has a life in it. Rather than the sun-bleached green of late summer, there is a feminine undertone to early greens, pinks and a freshness at the core. It's a green that has just woken up rather than ready to fade. When I start to think about making a new colour or palette, I look to people, words and place. Colour represents an abstract quality in our emotions. It's something we don't always understand, but I try to put the nebulous into visual clarity. A feeling becomes a colour. We have a green in our collection called Pihau Green. It relates to Pihau Beach on the west coast of Auckland. And when I was a teenager, my friends and I would spend our last summer days here. The flax was bleaching out, sun waning, and school was fast approaching. So Pihau Green represents a longing and a readiness, as well as a visual reminder of what late summer sun feels like. 
Other times it's people who inspire. One of my favourite colours in our palette is Winifred Green. The colour itself is made up of five different pigments, mostly earth, but with a whiff of magenta added to ensure its magical hue. I use magenta in the colour formula because of Winifred Nicholson, the 20th century British painter on whom I base the colour. Most greens are a simple combination of yellow and blue with added black or white. But we mix paint colours like an artist. We add umber, magenta and ochre pigments to the formula for Winifred Green. And the difference is palpable. It's nuanced and alive and we hope a valid ode to this incredible painter of flowers and landscapes. Nicholson saw light and colour in a joyous and deeply loving way. Magenta was a huge surprise, hiding in plain sight within many of her paintings. I know I could have made a colour that was representative of this, but the more I read about Nicholson and researched her paintings, the more I felt she was definitely green. She was a feminine, natural, domestic and optimistic green. A colour that I hope is a conduit to breathe in all the goodness of her work and views on life. I believe that every home can be coloured in with the emotions and hopes of the right life for each of us. You just have to notice the change, a little like the seasons. Welcome spring, and thank you Winifred. That was Cassandra Ellis. Now Gillian, I just love her passion for colours that spring can bring. What are the little changes that you notice with the coming of spring? I think it's interesting her take on green because whenever I go through the English countryside, uh, especially in spring, I just marvel at the colour of nature green and how spectacular it is. But we're so lucky here in London that we have all the parks. And we walk through the seasons, basically. So we start and we first see the white snowdrops and we see little carpets of purple crocuses. And then my favourite is when the daffodils, patches and patches of daffodils in the spring sun come out. And that yellow is so joyous that even on a stormy, rainy day, you can't help but have a spring in your step because it really does herald so much more than just spring. It is new beginnings, and it's I greet them with so much enthusiasm, those yellow daffodils. And Martella, what do you notice in Zurich as the seasons change? Are there any specific markers yeah, as everywhere, I think it's also about the green. What I love is the fast performance because in those days you can observe day by day what happens and what is the marvel that it seems, at least to me, that within two days there is an explosion of green, you know, like from brown trees, two days and afterwards it's a bright, luminous green all over you. It's incredible. I think this fastness of nature's performance is incredible. In Zurich, in the forests, but also like on Bahnhofstrasse, where we have a lot of linden trees, so you see it everywhere. It's interesting, the idea of a micro-season, because I think we're so used to this kind of like quarterly notion of the seasons, but actually you can break it down so much more into episodes. It doesn't even have to be you know, indigenous plants, it can be mimosa that comes so early and then this incredible magnolia moment that you have, certainly in Switzerland and places like Ticino, but here in London too. And it's funny, in the past couple of days, there's been blossom trees to blowing in the wind. It looks almost like it might be snow because it's, it's quite chilly. And then you look again and it's, it's white blossom just kind of flowing around the streets. So there's all this ambiguity and kind of beauty that you can just slowly pick up just walking. And I think that Cassandra is really interesting because she, she talks about the unique 
palette of spring green being something to do with promise and optimism. And it's so different to something that might just be the kind of dark, dark green of a holly or something. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak as ever. Confect Corner is produced by Colotta Rabello and Paige Reynolds and is edited by Christy O'Grady. You can reach us at audio at confectmagazine.com. The spring edition of Confect Magazine is on shelves now. We'll be back next month, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>